An authoritative study shows that 20% of Americans suffer from a severe mental illness. Another study shows that 23% of Americans identify themselves as liberals. According to my calculations, that means that 3% of Americans are just plain knuckleheads. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. That's actually true, you know. That's, a, that's an actual study. 20%, 2 out of 10 Americans suffer from a severe mental illness, and 50%, every other American, will suffer from a, a mental illness at some point in his life. So I'm not sure what that includes. Maybe that includes dementia or something like that. But 50, and maybe, maybe just election time. Uh, but, but I mean, that's, but even just the 20% of Americans are suffering from a severe mental illness. That's an amazing statistic. That means two out of 10 people. You know, I, I've written a lot about this. I've written a lot about mental illness because uh, it just appears a lot in my novels. I mean, novelists are not always in control of what shows up in their novels. And one thing that I sort of realized looking backward is that this, this one character, type of character, a young woman, <clears throat> usually a beautiful young woman, who is a schizophrenic, has occurred maybe three or four times in my novels. I've maybe had three or four, and I know, I know why, a very personal reason why that is true, and I won't, so I won't talk about it here, but it is in, I do cover it in my memoir. So in, in September, I, don't, I still don't think you can buy it yet, but in September, my memoir, The Great Good Thing, comes out, and it does explain why uh, crazy women keep turning up in my, uh, in my novels. But one of the first ones was uh, a woman, I think her name is Elizabeth, and don't say a word. She was played by Brittany Murphy in the movie. Everybody remembers her going, I'll never tell, you know. It was a very, very strange experience because that became kind of, you know, a, a meme, what used to be called a meme, an idea that was floating around. Jay Leno was making jokes about it, and I was sitting there going, okay, I made that, you know, I made this character up, and now Jay Leno was making jokes about it. It was very strange. But anyway, when I was researching this, and I've done a lot of research into schizophrenia because these characters keep occurring, and um, when I was researching this, I went out to a, an institution, a mental institution, or psychiatric hospital, I think, as they are now called, out in Long Island, and I interviewed this the psychiatrist in charge of the place. I was talking to her about schizophrenia. Really smart woman. She became a friend for a while. I don't, I've lost track of her, but she was a really nice, smart woman. And she was saying, you know, schizophrenia is a lot more common than you think it is, and it's a very prevalent out in the world. And what schizophrenics do is they watch a lot of details and they string these details together, keep very careful notes, a lot of them, they observe very carefully, and then they weave them into a narrative that just happens to be completely wrong. Happens to be completely delusional. It's, it's very touching because we all do this. You know, we all put together the facts. I mean, if you if you watch babies or infants, they you can see them starting to do this, starting to put facts together and extrapolate, generalize from what little they know. Maybe half of the cute things kids say they say because they have made a generalization without enough information. You know, they just think they've seen something twice and they think that happens all the time or they see one thing and they just think, you know, there are some people who have two legs, some people have four legs and before they figure out there's a dog or whatever. So we're all doing that. And of course, in politics, we, we're all a little schizophrenic. In politics, that's how all these conspiracy theories come about. People put them together. And when you talk to conspiracy theorists, you know, they're absolutely positive that you, you cannot deny, they will always say this, you can't tell me that this fact and this fact doesn't hang together. And my, my answer to this is always the same. There's, you shouldn't come up with a conspiracy theory if you don't need a conspiracy theory. So if, 
the Islamists say they're going to destroy the World Trade Center, and then they destroy the World Trade Center, and then they say, we've destroyed the World Trade Center. You don't actually need an alternative theory. You know? I mean, that, that pretty, well, pretty well explains what happened. You know? and people say, well, it was really George W. Bush. You say, why? You know, why would you think? I, I, I feel this way about people who think that uh, Obama is like a Muslim sleeper agent. I always say, well, what's the difference between what he believes and what 80% of the college professors in the country believe? And they're not Muslim sleeper agents. I, I just think he, he's a leftist fool, you know? I mean, he's a guy, like, the, he's an academic leftist. You don't really need an explanation beyond that. But, but anyway, this is what schizophrenics do. And this lady said to me, the psychiatrist said to me, you know, you find them out in the world a lot, and they make very good night watchmen. They make very good security guards because they really pay a lot of attention. I think it was the next day. It wasn't. It was two days later. The end of Don't Say a Word, the novel, takes place on Hart Island, which is New York's Potter's Field. Do you know what a Potter's Field is? Yes. Potter's Field is where they bury the indigent, where they bury people who have no one to claim their bodies. Uh, from the Bible, Judas was buried in the Potter's Field, and that's how we get the Potter's Field. And so Hart Island, it, it, used, to be under, it used to be where the New York Public Library is. There were still bodies in, in Bryant Park under the New York Public Library, but they moved it out. Obviously, as the city got bigger, they moved it out onto this island on Hart Island. And so they don't let the public out there, and I wanted to see it because I had this great plot point that took place on Hart Island. It, the movie also ends on Hart Island, but I think they changed the plot at the end. But anyway, it still, it still ends out there. So nobody had put this in a novel, and I thought, boy, oh boy, I've really got something, but I've got to get out there. And I knew this reporter named Tim Sheld. I think Tim is now the news director of WCBS AM, I think. But at the time, he was a street great street reporter, the kind of guy who would just walk through a, a riot with a microphone asking people, you know, how do you feel about the fact that your city's on fire? You know? And he's just an absolutely fearless, great reporter. So I said to him, why don't you do a story about Hart Island and take me out as your producer? And Tim was always game. He said, sure, you know, this is a good idea. Nobody said, he said, it's actually a good idea for a story. So he did a story. We were radio. He was a radio reporter. So, you know, he needed a producer, and he brought me along, and I carried, I can't remember, I carried a tape recorder or something to look like a producer. But, of course, I just wanted information for my book, you know. So Tim is out on Hart Island, and he's interviewing people, you know, like, what, what's your budget, you know, and what are the protocols, and how do you bring the bodies out from the morgue? And we, we traveled with a, a load of corpses, uh, out on this, you know, barge out to the island. <laughs> Tim is asking all these reporter questions, you know, and how does the city govern this and all this. And I'm asking questions like, if you wanted to dig up a body at the, in, in the middle of the night, you know, how would, would you need a backhoe? Could you, would a shovel, you know, how would you find that? And the guys are going, who are you again? I'm, I'm the producer, you know, I'm the producer. <laughs> like, but I did, I got, I got out there and I saw this, this massive, uh, huge operation for burying homeless people, basically, in New York. As we're going out there, and this is the day after I talked to the psychiatrist, we're standing on the dock waiting for the barge to take us out. And the security guard comes up to me and says, are you with the press? And I said, yes. And he said, let me, let me show you something. This is something you might want to cover. And he takes out a legal pad, and it was as if the psychiatrist had invented him. This, this is this security guard. He takes out a legal pad covered with writing and arrows and diagrams and all this to prove to me that the AIDS crisis, which was in full swing at the time, was a government plot. And he had it all, the dates when someone was here and the dates when someone, and he just had it 
figured out to a fairly well. It was a government plot to kill off, I think, black people. I can't remember what it was, what the point of the... That's, that's one thing about conspiracy theories. A lot of times, they have no reason to, for, to do them. But, but he, he was a schizophrenic. And I, now I knew, like in the old days, I would have just said, oh, he was, he's a kook. But he was a schizophrenic. And he, just like the psychiatrist said, he was right out there doing a job that it was actually good for a schizophrenic to do. All of which I think I bring up uh, pref in prefatory to asking the question, has everyone gone insane? <laughs> I mean, I'm watching, I am watching what is happening in the wake of this Paris attack. And I am seriously sending emails to the calmest people I know saying, am I just paying too much attention to this or have we gone, have people gone insane? I think people have gone absolutely nuts. I mean, the question the question before us, right? They're bringing all these Syrian refugees in. They just slaughtered a bunch of people in Paris in ways that I don't care what these people say. We you cannot prevent. I walk around malls, shopping malls, theaters. Anybody could pull off an attack like this, and we're and we want to let in ten thousand more of these guys. So. Let's, let's just take a look at what the debate is, all right? First, first, there's this guy, Ben Rhodes. He is the, let me get his title right, he is the security advisor, the national security advisor, Ben Rhodes, who so he's one of Obama's advisors. He's on Fox News Sunday, and he's asked the question, are we going to change anything? Because the definition of insanity, right, is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Nothing's going to change in the wake of the Paris attacks. Here's Ben Rhodes. No, Chris, we're still planning uh, to take in Syrian refugees. Uh, we have very robust vetting procedures for those refugees. It involves our intelligence community, our National Counterterrorism Center, extensive interviews, vetting them against all the available information. Uh, and what we need to be able to do, frankly, is sort out that foreign fighter flow, those people who've gone into Syria and come out and want to launch attacks, or those people who've had connections with ISIL uh, in Syria. We need to be able to have the intelligence base to identify and target those people. At the same time, we have to recognize they're tragic victims of this conflict. They're women and children, orphans of this war. Uh, and I think we need to do our part, along with our allies, to provide them a safe haven. First of all, uh, according to the UN, 75% of these uh, uh, refugees are men. Which, and what is that about, anyway? Why are the men getting out? Why are the men not taking the women out? Why are the men not shepherding the women out? Why aren't they sending the women out? I, I mean, you would think if they were refugees from a war, they would be 75% women and children. But why, so why are they 75% men? I, I don't have an answer for that, but it seems like a, you know, just one of those little questions that might be worth answering. All right, so that is Obama's national security advisor telling us that all we gotta do is vet these things. A month earlier, this is before the Paris attacks, Jim Comey, the head of the FBI, is, is before a congressional committee. And Comey has a reputation for being independent. I don't know how true that is, but his reputation is that he is not under Obama's thumb, and he will do and say what he thinks is, is the right thing to do and say. Uh, that's his rep. Here he is being questioned by a Democrat congressman who says to him, essentially, can we vet these people? There's a concern that we have no database with which to vet the guys coming over. So listen to the question and answer. Before this committee, uh, Assistant Director Steinbeck said that the concerns in Syria is that we don't have the systems in place on the ground to collect the information to vet. That would be the concern. Databases don't hold the information on these individuals. 
Is that still the position of the department? Yes, I think that's the challenge we're all talking about, is that we can only query against that which we have collected. And, and so if someone has never made a ripple in the pond in Syria in a way that would get their identity or their interests reflected in our database, we can query our database until the cows come home, but we're, we're not going to We'll, there'll be nothing show up because we have no record on that person. That's what uh, Assistant Director Steinbach was talking about. You can only query what, what you've collected. And, and with respect to Iraqi refugees, we had far more in our databases because of our country's work there uh, for a decade. This is a different situation. All right, we actually have some footage. Remember a year ago, last summer, we had all those children coming in from Central America who were just swarming through our southern border. And so we actually have footage of an interview, uh, a top crack FBI agent interviewing one of these children coming across our border doing a security check. Uh, so pl play that for us just so we can see how tight our security is. Well, my little friend, and how old are you? Eleven. Eleven years old. From Central America. I see. And what country in Central America are you from? Huh? Are you from Guatemala, San Salvador? Yes, Guatemala, San Salvador. That is my country in Central America. Right. Um, you know, as much as we sympathize with your plight, little fella, many of us fear that so many unchecked refugees might bring diseases with them. I have no diseases. Really? Allah has healed my malady with his magic powers. Great. Of course, there's still the problem <coughs> that we can't care for so many unskilled newcomers. I have many skills. Like what? I can fly a plane, and I can build a nuclear device out of paper clips and a plastic bag. Wow. Still, don't all countries have the right and the need to protect their borders? Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. I see, like the John Lennon song, nothing to kill or die for. Except jihad. Oh, boy. All right. It's possible. It's just possible that was not one of our top FBI agents. <laughs> it, may, it may have been me. I'm not sure. Uh, it was, I think that was one of our revolting truth videos uh, that we did over Truth Revolt. Uh, but, but look, which one of these guys is telling the truth, the FBI guy or the national security guy? It's obvious it's the FBI guy because what he's saying makes perfect sense. We don't have a database. You know, you can't check these people if there's no database, if they haven't committed a crime, if they haven't been arrested, if they've been practicing jihad and getting away with it, then they're just coming into the country unchecked. Okay, so at least all these governors who are complaining, who don't want these refugees resettled in their states, all these people who are coming out and saying, maybe we should wait, pause, uh, Paul Ryan said that, maybe we should just take a pause, make sure that everything's safe, all these people are not out of their minds, they're raising a question. Now let's listen to the President of the United States, our, our President. He's in Turkey, where, by the way, at a soccer game, they wanted to have a moment of silence for the dead in Paris. And during the moment of silence, the fans started booing and chanting Allahu Akbar, okay? So this is formerly moderate Turkey. I always love that word moderate because, of course, it's a relative term, right? It's, relative. it's the moderate people are between, you know, the reformed people and the extreme people, and it all depends where extreme and reformed sit. That's what the moderate. So they're booing the dead in Paris and chanting Allahu Akbar. So it's a big triumph. Hooray. They're, they're cheering, essentially, for the killings in Paris. So our president is in Turkey, and he is asked about people bring, raising these concerns. Now let's listen to the, the first cut. Folks want to pop off and have opinions about 
what they think they would do, present a specific plan. If they think that somehow their advisors are better than the chairman of my Joint Chiefs of Staff and the folks who are actually on the ground, I want to meet them. And we can have that debate. But what I'm not interested in doing is posing uh, or pursuing some notion of American leadership or America winning or whatever other slogans are come, uh, they come up with um, that has no relationship to what is actually going to work to protect the American people uh, and to protect people in the region who are getting killed and to protect our allies and people like France. This president is a dick. I mean, pardon my language, but don't, don't bleep that because there's, I can't think of another word. I cannot think of another. People, people are di dying and people have concerns and they're popping off and I'm too busy, he says later, I'm too busy for this. I'm too, I mean, do you remember was it 2013 when he maneuvered the Republicans into shutting down the government? And I thought, hey, good for you. That's good politics because we know the press always blames the Republicans. The Republicans, you back them into a corner. You trick them. They're stupid. The Republicans are stupid. You're a great politician. Great. Good for you. Okay. Okay. I have, really, I have no problem with that. Politics isn't beanbag. It's like that's, that's a fair, tough political uh, you know, move to pull. Then to make sure people suffered and really blamed the GOP. He started closing parks and war memorials during World War II ceremonies. Who does that? What kind of president does that makes, makes sure I want the American people to suffer so that they blame the GOP and I win political points? I, don't, I can't think of another president who would have done that. We talk about Carter and what a bad president he, he was and what a kind of mean little man he's become in the, in the years afterwards, but even he would not, he's just I mean. And when the Supreme Court had that gay rights decision, and here's something where I, I have no dog in the fight, I don't care what, what happens, whether gay people get married or not, it has no effect on my marriage, has no effect on what I think marriage is. It really, you know, I just, I, I hope they live and be well. I want them to live and be happy, and that's, that's fine. But a large percentage of this uh, country has very, very deep religious reservations on this subject that are, are deeply held and not hateful at all. And the president lights the White House, which is our house, and he turns it rainbow colored. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's a dick move. It's not some, you know, it doesn't give me pleasure to say that. I'm old enough so that it actually doesn't give me pleasure to say this about the American president. I mean, if I met Barack Obama, I would call him sir, I would talk to him respectfully, not because of fear, because if there's one thing my life has shown is that I'll say anything to anyone, just, talk, just ask my wife, I will say anything to anyone, but he's the president of this country that I love, he was fairly elected by a, the people of this country that I love, he represents them, I do not like calling him names, I don't mind disagreeing with him intensely, but come on, you know, come on, people aren't popping off, they're raising objections. All right, now, listen to this, this next quote that he says, because some people have suggested that maybe we should take a second look at our policy toward Islamic immigration. Maybe the West should take a second look altogether at our policy toward Islamic immigration. Here's Obama commenting on that. And when I hear folks say that, well, maybe we should just admit the Christians but not the Muslims, 
When I hear political leaders suggesting that there would be a religious test for which person who's fleeing from a war-torn country is admitted, when some of those folks themselves come from families who benefited from protection when they were fleeing political persecution? That's shameful. That's not American. It's not who we are. Okay. I'm going to parse the logic of that in just a minute, but I just want to point out, by the way, that even the left now, remember, the left has followed Barack Obama over a cliff. They have lost governors, state houses. They have lost uh, the Senate. They've lost the House of Representatives. They've lost a lot. Their party is in the pits across the country because of Barack Obama, and they have followed him in lockstep, basically, mostly, I think, because he's the first black president, and they're going to be dining off that for the next 50 years. He's, he's really been bad for the Democrat Party, but they do not attack him. They're attacking him now. Now, finally, they hear what this sounds like. I mean, listen to this. This is from uh, The Daily Caller, I think. And you're talking about guys like Harry Reid, uh, who are finally coming out and saying that this is the wrong tone that he's using. Eugene Robinson. Eugene Robinson is so far to the left that really he's fallen off the end of California. He is one of the most leftist uh, you know, people out there. And he's saying he sounds dismissive. He sounds annoyed that people are raising these issues. And he does. That's exactly what he sounds like. But let's for a minute, let's for a minute just parse the logic of what he just said. It is un-American. It is un-American to say that we ought to think about Islamic Im immigration. Now that means that there is such a thing as being an American. If you can be un-American, you can be American. If you can be un-American, then being an American ends somewhere. The idea of who we are is a circle. It's a closed circle. Let's picture it that way. And outside the circle are the people who are un-American. In this case, in Obama's world, they're the Republicans. So he admits that there is something. It's, we're not just an amorphous mass. We are a set of ideas. And this is the thing. I know I hammer this a lot, but it's true. We are a set of ideas. Each of us as people is a set of ideas. We're not just a bunch of urges and lusts and things like that. We're also the ideas we hold that shape how we behave, things we want to do but don't do because our ideas tell us not to do them. All right, so there is this set of ideas called American, and there is this set of ideas called not American, not who we are in the president's language. Isn't it at least possible? Isn't it at least possible? Islam is a set of ideas. Islam is a set of ideas. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's a set of ideas from a book, you know, maybe divinely inspired, maybe not, but it's a set of ideas. Isn't it at least possible that some or most or all of those ideas fall outside of the circle of what it means to be an American? It is at least possible that some or most or all of the ideas that constitute Islam, according to the president's own logic, according to his own picture of what it is to be an American and not an American, 
it's possible that not just Republicans are un-American, not just 50% of the country is un-American, not just the people who disagree with Obama are un-American, but it's possible that people who follow Islam also are outside of the circle of being American. It's possible. It's worth asking. It's worth debating. We're not popping off when we ask it. I mean, there are people being killed all over the West by people who are Islamic. And it's they now, you know, the, the left, it's a gift for the left to be able to use words like ISIS and ISIL as if there weren't also Boko Haram, as if there weren't al-Shabaab, you know, all these, you know, al-Qaeda, as if there weren't all these different organizations that are all powered by the same thing. John Kerry, our, our new incompetent Secretary of State, said of the Paris attacks, <clears throat> you know, well, at least the Charlie Hebdo things, you could understand why they did them. <laughs> but, I'm not quoting him exactly, but this was the, the, the tone of what he said. At least you could understand the rationale behind the Charlie, but this, I don't get at all. Well, of course you don't get it all because you won't see, you know, it's like, it's like when Admiral Nelson didn't want to retreat, he would put, put, he would get the signal to retreat and he'd put his telescope against his blind eye and he'd say, I don't see the signal. Well, that's John Kerry looking at the Koran. He doesn't see the Koran. So these guys have absolutely no reason. He can't understand why they're killing people. But if there is such a thing as being an American, and if it has foundational values, and if there are things that contain those values, if it is a closed circle, it is at least worth asking the question whether some or most or all of the ideas that form Islam fit into that circle. And if they don't, we have a problem because Obama, what Obama is playing on, he is playing on our Christian Judeo-Christian acceptance of the stranger. He is counting on our welcoming the stranger, of our wanting there to be enough room at the inn, of our not wanting to close our doors to anybody according to his race or his, his belief system. I get it. It's what, it's what lawyers call the tolerance trap. You know, you want to be tolerant, but you can't tolerate intolerance. So it is, I get that there's a paradox in there, but this guy is so superior to the rest of us that he can't even see the paradox. He can't even see that we have a, a problem. Our, our core values are coming up against the limits of their abilities to take in, as we have done so successfully over the years, to take in the stranger and make him us. This whole system for making people us has broken down. So, you know, we started out talking about craziness. This is craziness. This is madness. It's madness to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result. And we also talked earlier in the week about narcissistic personality disorder, which shows itself in people who cannot change their minds, even when they're wrong. I want to just close with reading something that was in the Wall Street Journal. They have this really nice, uh, notable and quotable thing uh, at the end of their op-eds where they just pick out something that sounds interesting to them. And they take out the really interesting historian, Niall Ferguson. Uh, I'm not allowed to quote him in the house because he left his wife for I and her CLE. And my wife doesn't like it when people leave their wives. So I don't, <laughs> I don't quote him. I, I, don't, I don't like to say that I and her CLE, I don't know, a lot of people would leave their wives for I and her CLE. So here's Niall Ferguson, and he says, like the Roman Empire in the early 5th century, Europe has allowed its defenses to crumble. As its wealth has grown, so its military prowess has shrunk, along with its self-belief. It has grown decadent in its shopping malls and sports stadiums. At the same time, it has opened its gates to outsiders who have coveted its wealth without renouncing their ancestral faith. It is doubtless true to say that the overwhelming majority of Muslims in Europe are not violent, 
but it is also true that the majority hold views not easily reconciled with the principles of our liberal democracies, including our novel notions about sexual equality and tolerance, not merely of religious diversity, but of nearly all sexual proclivities. That's us. That's only Christendom, evil Christendom, only the countries formed by Jesus Christ, by believing in Jesus, belief in Jesus Christ, tolerate all sexual proclivities and men and women being basically equal in rights. Ferguson goes on, and it is thus remarkably easy for a violent minority to acquire their weapons and prepare their assaults on civilization within these avowedly peace-loving communities. He goes on to talk about uh, Rome as it was falling, and one of the things that did happen in Rome is the barbarians were barred from coming across the border but the military, the Roman military, had been so extended that they couldn't keep them out, and they just wandered across the border and ultimately sacked and took over Western Rome. All right, that's all I have to say. Just, uh, I just want to point out that the conversation is being held at the level of madness. It is not being held at the level of debate between uh, you know, one side and another. It is being held by people on both the left and the right who see that there's a problem, and by President Crazy Man, who does, simply does not see that he may have made a mistake. He cannot, you know, it's like Oliver Cromwell said by the bowels of Christ, thinking you might be mistaken. He cannot think that he might be mistaken. Stuff I like. If you have seen the movie A Simple Plan, you have probably not read the novel A Simple Plan. A Simple Plan, I think this guy is one of Scott Smith, Scott B. Smith, I think, this guy really frustrates me. I think he is one of the best novelists writing. I think, I mean, I'm prejudiced about this, but I think all great American writing right now is being done in the genres. I think that what is called literature in America is humorless and uh, pompous and pretentious and deals with a very small number of opinions, uh, most of them centered in the academy. But crime writing, science fiction writing, horror writing, are just absolutely at their peak right now. I mean, we're having a second golden age, which we've been having since the 90s, when I started. That's what, that's what set it off. Um, but Scott Smith is among the, the very best. And Stephen King agrees with me. A Simple Plan was a much better novel. He wrote, I think he was nominated for an Oscar for writing the screenplay of the movie. The novel is so much better, so much darker, so much weirder. It ends in a much harsher way. He's written two novels. This is what drives me crazy about him. He's so slow. The other one was The Ruins, which he also wrote the screenplay for and which is a terrible movie, <clears throat> just a terrible movie, although it does win the prize of the most gratuitous nude scene in any movie ever. It's just like in the middle of a conversation, a woman just takes off her clothes. <laughs> it's like, you just went like, what? You know, why did that happen? But, but it, it's a terrible movie. It's a wonderful book. This guy is a nihilist, I'm pretty sure. I think his philosophy is nihilism. Obviously not a philosophy I agree with, but a philosophy that does produce really good writing because it allows you to view the world in the harshest possible light, which is the most realistic possible light. And a lot of Christians get kind of, you know, start to tell fairy tales about reality, not realizing that reality remains exactly the same whether you have faith or not. Uh, Scott Smith, A Simple Plan, terrific novel, really one of the best crime novels of the last 40 years. Uh, pick it up. I'm Andrew Claven. We're going to continue, I think, this discussion a little bit more tomorrow. Uh, the, everything I've said this week sort of seems to me to have a theme. It occurs to me as I'm talking, and maybe we'll get back to that theme tomorrow unless something else happens and we have to talk about that. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. We'll be back again tomorrow for the last show of the week. I hope you'll be here.